0: Fishing for answers about our river. This week, it's all about our very own North Saskatchewan River. We'll be joined by Martin Dugas of Riverwatch Institute, Alberta.
1: He'll tell us all about science experiments, group river floats, and the dinosaurs still lurking below the surface. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.
0: Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 141, where have to address the title because you know food puns fish are friends not food we recognize that as gospel truth yes it worked for
1: the pun in the title is the best we could do but we do treat fish as friends
0: nemo we're we're still out there looking for you whenever you pass a clownfish in the store you gotta say is that nemo
1: i think so (laughs) (laughs) just like you gotta say is this a news recap no it's the rapid fire segment A particular pain point of Edmontonians, our record on recycling, is an issue many council candidates are seeking to resolve in the upcoming election. While Edmonton was once lauded for its incredible recycling, touting up to 90% diversion from the landfill, the reality was far, far less than that. Candidates are seeking to remedy this by showing their exceptional recycling records— either by recycling UCP talking points or whatever got the most retweets on Progressive Twitter last week. The pedestrian
0: pathway underneath the Tawatina Bridge for the Valley Line Southeast likely won't open until there's snow on the ground, TransEd has said. Ever since the Cloverdale footbridge was demolished in 2016, residents have been anxious for its replacement, with scant details on when that will occur. Though the delay is likely unwelcome, at least residents now have a time frame for when the bridge will open. Before, it could be any day of the year. Now that we know there will be snow on the ground, it narrows it down considerably by ruling out those 14 days per year that Edmonton doesn't have a minus 30 blizzard.
1: A new Edmonton police service program to build bridges with marginalized communities got off to a rocky start this week after the EPS hired the city's recommended consultant and then somehow ended up with a two-ton bent steel girder at their booth in Paul Kane Park. Speaking Municipally is a proud
0: member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the Business Council of Alberta. If you are passionate about Alberta and its future, check out The Brief, an Alberta Better podcast series presented by the Business Council of Alberta co-host Scott Crockett and Brittany Brander talk to Alberta's business leaders, innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs about the big challenges Albertans are facing from unemployment to childcare to mental health and economic diversification. They also celebrate the stories of growth, innovation, and prosperity and discover bold ideas that aim to make life better for Albertans. You can find new episodes of the brief on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen at businesscouncilab.com slash alberta better podcast. That's businesscouncilab.com slash alberta better podcast. With summer in full swing, Everyone in Edmonton tends to get hot at a point. And one of the ways to not get hot is to go ahead and jump in a big body of water. And Edmonton's blessed with a pretty expansive one of those. But I mean, I went to the Fort Edmonton Park footbridge, little beach. I swam in it. And my boss, when I told him about it the next day, was like, ugh, I'd never swim in that dirty river. And this is a misconception that's all across the city. And what better way to address misconceptions than to get an expert guest on? So today we have Martin Dugas. He's the executive director of the Riverwatch Institute of Alberta. And he's joining us to talk all about rivers in Alberta. Welcome, Martin. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Because I introduced you as coming from the Riverwatch Institute, Alberta, some people are probably asking, what's that? So
2: what's Riverwatch Institute? We're a nonprofit organization focused on uh, environmental science and uh, and a variety of watershed uh, health programs.
0: Riverwatch has been around since, I believe, 1995. It's not a new organization. What would you say the organization does day to day? I mean, besides coming on to a podcast to talk to me and Mac... How does the organization actually help? What does it do on a day-to-day basis?
2: So we're involved in education, awareness, and introduction to watershed health through three different programs. Uh, one is our EcoFloats program, uh, which I believe we'll discuss a little bit more later. But we also have our Watch school program where we teach the science behind uh, water quality and we do testing on the North Saskatchewan River um, as part of the grade nine science curriculum. So we usually do, you know, pre-COVID between 10 and 15,000 kids per year through this program. And then our final program is our Creek Watch Citizen Science program where we, you know, monitor the health of uh, creeks throughout all of Alberta. And we work with volunteers and train them on how to do so. And they take this active uh, care in the ecology of these different uh, systems.
1: So it's about getting people On the river, learning about the river, interacting with the river, is that kind of the the idea is getting people to enjoy the rivers or is the science actually, you know, the science for students is interesting. It's helping them learn. Is it used for other things as well?
2: So that's a great question. I mean, there's so much you can learn about our watershed health and being on the river is a great example of, you know, taking in the information, not only about the science, but the enjoyment, the effects of being out in nature are profound. But there's systems out there that are ecosystems that are thriving, and there's amazing work being done to preserve this area that we can enjoy on so many different areas. So whether it's the science learning or the history learning or the importance of the water in all of our lives, you know, in our community health, um, it's just amazing to watch that kind of blossom into, you know, a more profound sense of what people are as citizens and, and their capacity to impact that.
0: Before we get too deep into it, I want to do a little bit of a jargon stop. And you said the word watershed a couple of times. For all of our listeners, what's a watershed? Is it something <laughs> in your backyard that stores a couple of containers of water? What do you mean when you say watershed?
2: You know, just any of our water systems, uh, you know, that we... Um, we're sustained from. So our rivers, you know, collect from other sources and deliver to other sources. And all of these areas where water is, is really important to not only the ecology of those areas, but to all of our health and our community's health. So that's something that we really try to get to a localized level when we talk about the different uh, specific areas. But in general, it's how to preserve um, what we have, how to appreciate it, how to enjoy it as well.
0: So I noticed on your website that you list EPCOR, the city of Edmonton, the city of Calgary, and a whole number of energy companies, all as supporters. How do you work with all of those organizations? What sort of hands do you have in these different pots?
2: You know, as an example with uh, EPCOR, we have an amazing partnership with a couple of our programs, our EcoFloats program, as well as our Creek Watch. And we work with them in a number of ways. We partner with them uh, through volunteering so we work with um, some of their teams to do our Creek Watch program where we train them up and they can take that local monitoring of their um, their local water systems and then filter that back into our database, which then goes to Feed Environment Alberta with really important information. We also partner with them in, in a way that, allow us to bring the river to people and make it not only affordable, but really informative, you know, through our interpretive tours uh, on the water where we get to share, you know, thousands of years of history um, and, you know, life being sustained on the river as well as a great adventure on the river. And while you're learning different things, you also learn how you can impact your environment and preserve this for many generations to come. And we do that, dovetailed with our, our partners, EPCOR is a huge part of why we have a healthy river system. And we try to make sure that everything that we're sharing about it is not only accurate, um, but is uh, verified by us as well.
0: I think a good place to start on the learning is to address some of the misconceptions. Because like I said off the top, you know, Edmontonians historically think the North Saskatchewan is a pretty dirty and gross river. And that hasn't been my experience. But what does the science say? What in reality is the state of the North Saskatchewan River? Is it a clean river? Is it safe for
2: fun in the sun and playing it? Absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing water system. We're very fortunate that it's um, quite still and, and quite deep and wide. So it's not typically very fast moving um, or dangerous in in those regards, but the water quality and health is actually quite amazing. Um, Some of the things that uh, it does have a reputation for was because of uh, being associated with uh, coal Um, directly next to it. That plant closed in the 1940s. It was associated with very dirty water. You shouldn't go into it. But that was also at a time when sewage was dumped into the river. Now with the structures and everything else in place, our water has never been cleaner. Um, The only times I'd suggest not going into the river is if there's a warning on the flow rate, so like how fast the water is going, or if we've just had a storm, a big storm, because there are... Uh, structures that are put in place that if we exceed a certain capacity, some discharges can go in, but then it's immediately uh, absorbed and processed back to allow the flow to be just as healthy or healthier than when we received it, you know, from the glaciers so that we pass it on to the next uh, community that's going to be using it. Something
1: that was in the news recently about raising water levels was this Bighorn Dam. Uh, The city and a bunch of municipalities talked about the release of water from the dam, and it was going to increase the water flow rate and levels. And they said it would present conditions typical of a spring runoff. This, I understand, is a dam that is up in Clearwater counties um, built by Calgary Power what do you know about this and is this something that is pretty unusual like a dam like this opening up into the rivers
2: so uh, you know it's a it's a timed release that they would be doing and it's it's proactive operation it allows for if we did get a sudden um increase in, in water that there's nothing structurally at risk. So these type of things, they take very, very serious because there's impact on uh, you know, the whole ecosystem along the way, but uh, they do give warnings. Uh, and we always uh, look in, in our particular case at the flow rates within the North Saskatchewan um, on a daily basis. Uh, so we get that information well in advance. I mean, it's it's part of a safe uh, program, and everybody understands that there is an impact, but it's also over a very uh, short duration.
0: So you had mentioned that, you know, when there's these big outflow events and there's storms, we make sure that we clean up and we pass the water down to our neighbors, you know, in the same or better state than we would have received it from the glaciers. Is this something that's common across all municipalities in Canada, or are there Are there still like bad actors out there where you don't want to be downstream from a certain city because they're not as judicious about their water as perhaps we are in Edmonton or in Alberta?
2: So outside of Alberta, I'm not sure what people are um, what people are saying. Um, I know that we are um, very pleased with the water that comes uh, to Edmonton, and it passes through a number of other communities. Um, I think the the general philosophy is, as far as I know. Um, uh, the highest possible standards that you can afford. And I know that um, the water that leaves uh, Edmonton is leaving better than even received. And that's an important part of um, the health of the the river. One other thing that I might say to kind of dispel myths too is, sometimes there's uh, foam that floats on the top of rivers and in a number of different ways, it can be a little bit brown and it can be a little bit white. The brown stuff is just organic material that's decaying. Ducks love it. Insects love it. Uh, The fish love it. Uh, So it's a really, really healthy part of the river. It'll pose no threat to any person or your animals uh, along the way. And so the white foam can actually be just uh, the last parts of the detergent that wasn't um, able to be broken down in the processes. And usually because it's coming in with the warmer water, ducks and other wildlife, they love it as well. So there's uh, a whole combination of things that might be misinterpreted that are actually quite healthy on the river.
1: Just looking at your science page, I was fascinated to see, like for the North Saskatchewan River, there's looks like maybe 15 different locations and then the indicators that are measured Like We're not talking one or two things. There's like 20 things on here. Ammonium, nitrogen, phosphorus, chloride, turbidity, conductivity, E. coli, different types of larvae. How often is all of these things being measured and and what do we do when there's an
2: anomaly? That, those are amazing questions so it's recorded uh in a database that we created that is accessible completely to all government bodies and agencies um and regulatory bodies that uh, that want it and so you know we get volunteer groups as well as our staff that do the uh different creeks so if a, a volunteer group signed up they would probably be doing you know once a week Uh, to three times a week um, measuring and monitoring and then uploading their data depending on what their eagerness is. They can do it whenever they want. So a lot of times, if we have more senior uh, volunteers, um, what they really do is they love that exposure to see if some of the, even their activities for stewardship or other uh, areas for cleaning up this uh, the area have impact on that. And so they might measure or monitor a little bit more. Um, it's a great way for people to connect, but also activate their their mind. And then they know how they can impact these things because they're measuring it on a regular basis and they share it with their neighbors.
0: Most organizations that do this sort of monitoring and this sort of science will eventually, you know, have a slant, have some sort of advocacy that they're pushing for. It strikes me that like, you know, the monitoring of our watershed, the checking of our water levels to make sure that our water is safe and that everything's functioning and that ecosystems are healthy should this be something that a nonprofit is doing like it is shocking to me that all of this very good data comes from like you said volunteers shouldn't this be something that our government is
2: taking care of you know i i i think it'd be great if it was also uh, done in that regard but the most empowering thing is empowering the people that are the users and the caretakers with information. You know, it's like minor little changes happen. So I, I can give you an example. In the Mill Creek Ravine, there's a a site or a number of sites along it that we, we measure the water quality, but we also do stewardship events at all of our creeks where we really try and clean things up and we might have planting events where we coordinate with resources through the city uh, or um, provincial resources and we get volunteers together and we make the ecological system stronger um, purposefully. Well, as soon as we were witnessed by people that were just various users of the river valley and these creek areas and systems, you started to notice they'd thank you and then they'd clean up a little bit Subsequent weeks afterwards, the place was so pristine, like ongoing stewardship uh, activity wasn't really necessary because what you do is you model an example. Uh, People realize that a little bit of work from a lot of people can go tremendous way and nature can heal itself with a little bit of help and support. So those individual actions, I think it's always great when citizens are engaged and aware of this information. They're just so much more empowered uh, to contribute to positive.
0: There's a really interesting point that I want to jump off on because you mentioned the Mill Creek ravine and you mentioned nature healing itself. So I'm not sure if this is in scope or if this is something that you know about, but there was a proposal to daylight Mill Creek ravine a couple of years back, uh, essentially, you know, remove some of our diverting stuff that we installed back when we were planning for a freeway and really open that creek back up, make it, uh, accessible for fish to uh, spawn downstream and really liven the place up and restore it back to how it was before. Is that something that you are aware of, involved in, have any opinions on? What would that mean to Mill Creek Ravine and the river system if something like that were to occur?
2: So, uh, you know, on I'll, I'll answer that in a couple ways. First, we're not aware of any specific plan um, that's under underway or being organized by any groups because I think the first thing that we'd want to do is introduce ourselves if we're not um, at the table to maybe provide some feedback or to receive some learning along the way that we can you know roll into what we're doing along the way and then to get a better understanding of what it is that they're hoping to achieve on a theoretical kind of ideological side if we make an investment in in these type of spaces where we have growing populations and we're actually looking for solutions instead of developing new areas and and other things, these become profound examples and models for us to really show that we've embraced the 21st century realities and we're preparing to pass on something better for future generations. I mean, I think that would be really empowering. And theoretically, like that's, a great space for our, you know, city to be in for so many reasons, not just an ecological, but it has so much of an impact in so many more areas. We'll keep on the daylighting, Troy, (laughs) make it happen (laughs)
1: single-handedly on this podcast. Martin, I wanted to ask you just before we move off of, you know, the quality of the water and, and the monitoring of the water and stuff about something that has been in the news a lot this year, which is the provincial approval for coal mining projects that people are concerned about contamination from and uh, city council here in Edmonton back in February passed a motion to ask administration to look into the impacts of this to look at how we might protect uh, our water from contamination from selenium and i believe actually this is coming back to council next month in August uh, or later later in August what can you tell us about about the importance of this and and maybe what other things might be happening on this file?
2: Well, I mean, you have major forces uh, at play. I mean, you have, you know, people's employment and uh, which is of paramount interest. You know, if you're in the coal industry and then you have the environmentalist perspective. But if you really look at the the biggest questions that we really do need to resolve are, you know, how do we maintain the the capacity to support growing populations uh, if we're consuming a finite resource um, at greater and greater rates and i think that when we talk about those type of situations in that regard we might have a different approach about either proceeding or thinking beyond uh, what's currently on the table. Because at the end of the day, we're gonna have millions and millions more people in the future using this water system every day. And we have a very protected um, areas of the, the river system that are incredibly important and beautiful. But if our populations get bigger and we destroy what we currently have, I don't know that we have solutions for future um, generations. And I think that if we get that perspective, it might help us navigate it in a more inclusive, long-term vision way.
0: So you might know the answer to this. Uh, In terms of the North Saskatchewan River, when we were talking with our city council about, you know, the risk of contamination, it doesn't seem to me that there is a plan B for the Edmonton area. Like our water comes from the North Saskatchewan River. If let's say, theoretically, the worst happens and the North Saskatchewan River doesn't become a viable source for drinking water for the Edmonton area. Is there an adaptable watershed in the area or is is this sort of it for the central Alberta
2: region? You know, from my understanding, that would be it. There is no other solution that has the capacity that's required. And again, as our population grows, you gotta remember it's, you know, 1.3, 1.4 million people using right now, that'll be another 1.4, 1.5 next year, and until it's two, until it's three, until it's, you know, more. And I think that if we're cavalier about our choices, now we will be desperate about our choices in the future.
1: Is this the kind of thing that Riverwatch would maybe do a, mo- a bit more advocacy on? Would you be speaking to a city council
2: in Edmonton or other cities about this kind of thing? I think that if it was ever in an advocacy role, that would be a like a board separate project type mm-hmm. of thing, we would absolutely be working with any of the the groups, you know, as they start to formulate um, either plans, responses, or gathering information. We would want to be at those those tables to not only help inform, but also to receive the information so that we can provide that knowledge back to not only our base of the people that we have in our system currently, but, you know, into any of our future um, sharings with others because again if we're introducing things like selenium and um, other um, areas we're going to be monitoring those things too so we want to be aware of what we're reporting back and and you know why um, we're seeing certain levels
0: so we've talked a little bit theoretical and academically about rivers and water but when I was browsing your website, the summer adventures and eco floats that you talked about earlier were a really cool thing that I didn't know anyone was offering in Alberta. So if you don't mind, do you want to talk to us a bit about what your eco floats are and why they're valuable?
2: Yeah, it's uh so it's our opportunity and again last year with COVID we weren't able to operate our uh Riverwatch school program uh and we had a lot of people calling and asking about uh possibly doing floats but some of our ra- our rafts that we had last year were too large to be able to just bring a few people <laughs> so they'd they'd be schlepping uh and paddling a very large raft with just a few people on it so we got cohort friendly rafts where up to eight guests can be on uh, on the river. And they enjoy a tour from uh, Dawson Park all the way down to Sunridge Ski Hill. We um, give them information on all the history uh, in the area, thousands of years of, of history, a lot of information on um, the health of the river from certain indicators, and then a lot of information also on their impacts uh, you know, on the river, on the things they do on a daily basis and the products they use and give them opportunities to ask questions and then to understand um, other alternatives and solutions or better ways to support this uh, amazing ecosystem. And when you get outside and a nice day and you're paddling with your friends or your family, this is just an amazing experience. You get to learn and you get to appreciate the nature and learning, but you also get a little bit of the exercise and kind of community feeling.
1: It's about six years ago that I had the chance to first go, you know, really seriously on the river. I did a paddling down the river with a canoe and you talk about a workout. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been so tired in my life. (laughs)
2: <laughs> People don't walk away uh, exhausted uh, from this. Um, we do ask for, you know, to bring, you know, four adults uh, from a paddling point of view. It could be two adults and two kids that are uh, capable of paddling, but it's just that it's shared. It's not strenuous to to anybody um, and that we can lift the, the boat out at the end and continue on with our, our day. So in
0: terms of, you know, experiencing the river and getting right into it like you might on the float. One of the proposals Edmonton City Council is once again debating is the touch the water promenade, the idea of developing the riverbank so that, you know, there's trails, there's viewing points, you can really get people down onto the banks. From a river ecology perspective, how does this affect the river? Is this something that, you know, is a good idea in terms that it gets more people down there? or, Or does this have lasting damage on the river? Is, is this something that we should be really careful
2: about? So the the first um, question to that is absolutely. Yeah, you, you have to be careful. You absolutely have to be careful. Um, we're part of that group that's being engaged um, regarding this. And we are in full support of just increasing the accessibility to the water systems, uh, to more groups, um, to appreciate the the waterway that we have and have access to it, but in a way that doesn't harm, especially the um, threatened in ecosystems and environments, and is always done in a way that's very sensitive to the ecosystem. I think when the right people are around and are playing within those parameters, the access to the river can be an incredible thing for our city. One thing that I have noticed in
0: the past. Uh- especially with climate change and with river safety. Uh, We've heard that, you know, from the 2019 to 2022 budget, there's 3 million being dedicated annually to managing hazards caused by slope instability and erosion. And we see it all throughout our River Valley trail system where, you know, trails become eroded, the river changes. As much as we don't want to experience that, we don't want our houses to slide into the river, erosion is sort of a fact of life for a river like Edmonton's it's been cutting through the land for generations. What's what's the solution to erosion? Are we doomed to fight this forever? Are there more clever solutions? How do we handle this going forward in the next 20, 50 years?
2: That's a great, great question. I think it's being purposeful about the um, shorelines uh, in all of the development. When you actually bring people to these areas, but they understand and are educated on how you treat these areas i mean like in edmonton as an example i mean it's the largest urban parkland in north america and it was protected because of the floods that we've had in the past so that you know they didn't want houses to fall in but actually that protected a real gem for everybody but as we get people down in these areas they take better care of it so doing stewardship events that you know really secure you know shorelines that is so possible. You can get that your, your citizens involved in all of those areas, the entire shoreline. I think they take care of it better. They appreciate it more. And I do think it'll be ongoing. You'll never be out of the woods. One decision and one action eliminates uh, future maintenance. But you can definitely give yourself time for reasonable sound and smart decisions if, if things need to be changed.
1: Some of this uh, touch the water project that Troy mentioned is is in Rossdale, which of course is a really important uh, indigenous part of our of our city. What, what kind of work does the River Watch folks or the others that are involved in this project? What what is the work happening with indigenous communities? Because
2: obviously they've been stewards of the of the river for a long time. So that's actually one of the other ways in which EPCOR has been amazing partner with us. Is is they have actually put us in touch with a number of indigenous um, groups that um, knowledge keepers for the river valley, in particular the area where we're doing our tours, because we want to also include and incorporate uh, as much interpretive um, information regarding I- indigenous uh, communities that have used this river system. Because I think that the richness to everybody's experience is better, but the learning and understanding how long. This river system has been in place and how many different views of how it's important are um, its incredible information. So we're reaching out with organizations. Uh, we've been doing uh, the organization of uh, tours so we can learn. So we take them along our tour and we listen to some of the interpretation um, from from an indigenous perspective. Uh, these are the things that you know we're trying to make sure that we're um, connected with our partners. When we have a
0: guest like you on who has some domain knowledge of this, it's always fun to get into some fun facts. What are some things about the North Saskatchewan River that just people don't
2: know about? What What are your river fun facts? Um, well, there's there's a whole bunch. Um, one is, uh, if I were to tell you that there was a dinosaur that currently still lives in our uh, rivers, and um, our North Saskatchewan River, would you know what that that animal is? No, but my daughter sounds. I she would love that. That's is. It, is, it, is it like a duck or a bird or something? Well, it's so it's it's a sturgeon as an example. So this this fish that is an ancient prehistoric non-evolved fish who has been thriving in our river systems is an endangered species right now, and you know they live 120 years. They don't reach sexual maturity until they're (laughs) thirty. Like (laughs) they're they're moving at a slow pace and need a lot of help. But even in the time, like just a further little note on the sturgeon, was um, when steam engines were going up and down the river, especially around the coal industry and other things. You know, the sturgeon were just being hit all the time. And because there are really oily fish, the um, people in the boats would just pick up the sturgeon and dry them out. And then they would use it as fuel to start burning because it's such an oily fish. It was a perfect fuel for these vehicles. So you you hear this information and you're like, like shocked. And then you go, but they're living there and they're endangered. We can protect them. Here's the things that you need to know around this area of the river. Um, it's really important that we don't do these activities and these well, people share that information you know that's just one there's many many other uh, things we share as well
0: well i think that's a fascinating point to close it on we've learned a lot about the river but when we have a guest on we always make a point to give some plug section at the end is there anything you want our listeners to know about anything you want to share with listeners here's some time
2: let them know about it So, I mean, right now we have our EcoFloats program uh, going on. And so if you go on our website, riverwatch.ab.ca, you can look and book your trip to EcoFloats. Uh, Enjoy a nice three-hour trip. You get to learn uh, a bunch of things uh, about our incredible water system and uh, really appreciate it from a hands-on point of view in a fun way. And if it's anything like what you've shared on this podcast, uh I...
0: I'm sure it'll be an interesting several hours. Uh, Definitely something to check out. Well, we look forward to hosting everyone. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Martin. It It was a joy to have you.
1: Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. You can find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca.
0: Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. I'm Martin. And we're Speaking speaking municipally. Municipally.